You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. To me, though, the the things that really bother me, okay, the trends that do get under my skin, the thing that would be most likely to uh, keep me up at night, the most dangerous threats, I guess let's say it that way, right? Um, Really, they're the ones that you can't exactly put a finger on because they don't come from the outside. They come from within. I'm going to turn this on its side, whereas others would think of the, you know, the strategic view and so forth, other things that would keep them. No, I I think it's it's something more pervasive. I'm talking about I'm talking about attitude within people. Okay, the things that you can't control, you know, other adversaries, other um, uh, challenges that you can meet and stuff you can define and you can formulate a plan against it. But how do you formulate a plan against attitude? You know, I'm talking about the demons of ignorance and apathy. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Today, we're going to have a conversation around leveraging data to support IT modernization as government agencies around the world have achieved various levels of success in unlocking the potential in their data to meet missions and improve decision making. Data is on the short list of government's most valuable assets, but is proven difficult to fully capitalize on. But improvements in technology, modern management solutions, and new administration policies are propelling agencies toward a data-driven government. In the U.S., the Office of Management and Budget, for example, recently issued 11 action items for agencies to implement through its 2021 data strategy. The mandatory actions cover a wide array of areas, including data governance, workforce development, and data management, and calls upon agencies to increase data literacy among all employees. While progress using data to improve business decision-making varies across the federal landscape, NASA, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the Small Business Administration are among those called out by a recent Government Accountability Office report as leading the pack. Each of those agencies was able to demonstrate use cases where efforts to use performance information led to improved business outcomes. Additionally, some agencies are improving the ways they use mission-focused data, NIH, for example, developed a centralized resource that integrates COVID-19-related electronic health record data from various organizations into a seamless structure credentialed researchers can use to combat the health crisis. And as we're talking about innovation, my guest today believes very strongly in innovating. In fact, he'll tell you if you aren't innovating, you're stagnating. Dr. Joe Perez is a chief technology officer and works for the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. He has been a highly sought-after resource in the government IT space and is also an international keynote speaker where he likes to talk about how to leverage data analytics in support of efficiency and process improvement. Dr. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian. It's, uh, It's my privilege and honor to be here with you today, sir. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Give us a little bit of a background on kind of some of the things you're working on right now and how you uh, got to your role as chief technology officer. Sure, sure. Thank you for asking, sir. So um, I uh, I started off as an educator for 10 years. Um, technology has always been uh, a love for me, technology and data. 
It wasn't the primary focus of my career my first 10 years. I kind of morphed into uh, information technology when I took a role at uh, North Carolina State University, where I stayed for the next 25 years. I actually got to leverage my love for both technology and uh, education and data in uh, rising through the ranks, first as a computer consultant, then computer training manager, analyst programmer, and business intelligence specialist. Then about four years ago, um, some phenomenal people from uh, Health and Human Services recruited me away from NC State. Uh, best best move I've ever made, both for my career and more importantly for my family. I mean, they, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and uh, now I'm working for them for about the last four and a half years now, a senior systems analyst. And I also uh, lead a uh, manage a team of, um, well, for data analytics and reporting. Um, I have uh, an additional role, a fractional role for uh, a startup company, Solentech Corporation, as uh, as chief technology officer. So my current role as uh, my full time role is with the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. Um, Enjoy. I really enjoy what I do. Uh, Bringing data to life and life to data is (laughs) my uh, one of my mottos that I go by. I won't hold the NC State thing against you. We're we're Virginia Tech, <laughs> we're Virginia Tech Hokies family over hey, here. That's all right. Hey, if the Hokies aren't if the Hokies aren't playing the Wolfpack, I don't mind rooting for the Hokies. It's okay. I I married into this, so my wife's an alumni, <laughs> so I didn't go to Virginia Tech. I, I won't I won't take too much uh, umbrage. There you um, go. So, quick question for you. Obviously, being at HHS um, within the state of North Carolina. What did the pandemic look like for you from a technology perspective? I would imagine that it had to be, um, I mean, daunting is the word that comes to mind, right? A l- little bit challenging, um, oh, to, to say the least. What did that look like for you and your team? Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, it kind of, uh, we were well prepared as far, as far as logistics are concerned with uh, the, the type of work that we were doing at the client services data warehouse. Um, all it, it kind of lent itself more to a remote working environment than it would if we were all say diesel mechanics or something, you know, you can't, uh, yeah. uh you know, you can't take your work home with you unless you <laughs> pull up in an 18 wheeler, you know, in front of your house or something, or you have a, you just happen to have a lift in your backyard or something. Uh, right. Um, but no, it, uh, in, in so far as the, the logistics for switching from, uh, an in-person, in-office work situation to a remote working situation. Um, many of it involved, uh, you know, beefing up our internet access, ensuring we had uh, the right kind of um, uh, equipment to access state resources, the laptops, um, the uh, uh, the infrastructure had to be in place, um, tools for collaboration. Uh, for the most part, we already had many of the tools. We just had to strengthen our grip on how to use those those tools and um, and stay productive um, and um, continue the camaraderie among the team with um, meetings that we would hold more often after it became evident that this was going going to be a long term thing rather than a short term thing. So. Um, so yeah, it, there were uh, quite a few uh, daunting things that uh, 
uh, challenges that had to be uh, that had to be met um, and uh, obstacles that had to be overcome, um, issues that had to be resolved, uh, concerns that had to be addressed. But um, you know, as as we did before the pandemic, we uh, tackled them all uh, with the same level of dedication and um, uh, resourcefulness that uh, that that we would always. That, that we would always use to meet these challenges. You mentioned your your team and, and obviously your stakeholders getting a grasp of being able to leverage the technology that you're bringing to bear right. And I think that's really interesting because one of the things that has challenged government leaders in, in let's call it pre-pandemic times is how to drive adoption of technology within their ecosystem. I think the pandemic was really a, uh, an enabler of that for draconian means, right? If if I need to collaborate with my team and Teams is the only way to do it, or or whatever Zoom is the only way to do it, then I just have to learn it. There's really no choice. But exactly, what were some of the ways that you worked with your team and and stakeholders? Um, probably even more importantly, because it it hits that larger ecosystem to ensure they could successfully adopt this technology and not just use it, but to be successful with it. Right, and and I think it all stems. Um, uh, it, it all depends upon education, um, in you know people having a uh, a willing spirit to uh, to try new things. Um, they have an innovative mindset. They they don't view they they don't view change as an enemy. You know, viewing change as an opportunity, not a threat. Uh, and getting into that mindset was something. You know, and and, and this would be true for any. Um, uh, for any industry, you know, whether it's government or not. Uh, but it just seems like in government work, I suppose people are probably a little bit less um, reticent. Uh, no, a little more, I should say, a little more reticent to change, um, a, a little less willing to break out of their comfort zone, go the extra mile and simply blow away the status quo. Um, that's the mentality that uh, that you have to overcome. Uh, that's the mentality that will keep you in stagnation, right? Uh, you know, if you're not innovating, you're stagnating. And certainly uh, a pandemic uh, gives <laughs> not a thing that you experience every day. Uh, and I believe it provides a mo enormous uh, motivation for people to adopt a more agile way of thinking, a more innovative mindset and getting people to that point you know, educating them with that and uh, uh, being motivated and knowing that that's what they're doing to serve the public, then um, uh, I think that's half the battle won right there. The pandemic has done a lot of things. I think it, I mean, not only did it accelerate a lot of the the technology adoption here, but I also think some of the, the leadership out there really understood exactly what you were saying, where you have to be innovating. Those right. those entities that were innovating prior to the pandemic kicking off, I think were well. I don't think I know were in a much better situation than the ones that had kind of stagnated, to use your word, um, prior to the pandemic kicking off, mm -hmm. and and that really demands strategic vision. So I, I'm curious if you could put your CTO hat on for a second. <laughs> Let's talk. Let's talk strategic vision. What are the, some of the things that keep you up at night? Not the not the talk, tactical blocking and tackling things that um, kind of facilitate your day to day. But when you're looking downrange, what are some of the things that really keep you up at night? And you're looking to to drive forward from a strategic vision. Yeah, that's that's an excellent 
Excellent question, Brian. You know, uh, uh, thankfully, I I don't know. I, I try not to let my legitimate concerns overwhelm my common sense need of sleep. Okay, but <laughs> you know, right? I mean, we all try that, right, Joe? We all that's try that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, if I were prone to letting things keep me up at night, you know, it 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 wouldn't necessarily have to be any earth-shattering, mind-numbing, spell-binding, post-apocalyptic sequence of events, right? You know, the kind of thing you see on uh, on on the Avengers movies, you know, uh, the, the Shikatra or whatever they're called, uh, the, the whatever those aliens were called, you know, are attacking us, all that silly stuff that you see, you know, whatever, resulting in massive destruction and general mayhem. But I don't know, maybe the way things are going... That kind of thing probably is going to happen at some point. <laughs> Anyways, why lose sleep over it now if it's going to? No, no. I mean, if it seriously, all, all teasing aside, you know, if it were some specific event, some some finite cause, some sequence of events, you know, of, of things that you can that you could point at, something concrete, then at least you'd have some known enemy that you can fight. And if it's something you can fight, it's something you can eventually overcome. Uh, no, but to me, though, the, the things that really bother me, OK, the trends that do get under my skin, the thing that would be most likely to uh, keep me up at night, the most dangerous threats, I guess let's say it that way. Right. Um, really? They're the ones that you can't exactly put a finger on because they don't come from the outside. They come from within. I'm, I'm going to turn this on its side, whereas others would think of the, you know, the strategic view and so forth, other things that would keep them. No, I I think it's it, it's something more per, pervasive. I, I'm talking about I'm talking about attitude within people. OK, the things that you can't control, you know, other adversaries, other um, uh, challenges that you can meet and stuff you can define and you can formulate a plan against it. But how do you formulate a plan against attitude? You know, I'm talking about the demons of ignorance and apathy. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the old story, you know, the uh, um, uh, the reporter who once asks a guy on the street to tell him uh, what he thought were the two biggest problems in, in his country today. And the guy says, oh, I don't know, and I don't care. And the reporter says, okay, thanks. You just named them. Ignorance and apathy, right? You know, I, I don't know. Some people might chuckle at that, uh, <laughs> it, I, right? Because it, it kind of sounds like a, like a dad joke. Uh, but no, I'm not joking. I'm serious. I really think that hits the nail on the head. Ignorance and apathy. You know, there, there, there's so much danger around today. Je danger in general. I mean, I don't care if you're talking about identity theft, scamming, phishing, ransomware, uh, uh, insider training, embezzlement, you know, what have you. you. You can't help but be aware of it. What what bothers me is is when people blindly go about as if these dangers, or maybe just danger in general, d doesn't exist. Uh, they, they don't know. They're not aware. They don't see. You know, they're they're ignorant. And for most of us, th those of us who are in technology leadership, again, putting that CTO hat on, as you said, you know, it, it behooves us to try to stem that tide, to to make people aware, to educate, like I was talking about earlier. You know, but but people just seem to go on and on and on as if the danger didn't exist. You know, they're they're painting a totally unrealistic picture. They're not taking appropriate precautions. They're not exercising due diligence. You know, they're they're turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to the warning signs. And well, that's that's ignorance. Right. And then there's apathy. The other thing. Right. I, I, I guess I can sometimes be a partner to ignorance in, in, in a way that's even worse. And, and worse than that is when they're both. 
they're both present at the same time, right? <laughs> because it says whether I know or not, it doesn't matter. Why? Well, because simply I don't care. You know, apathy sees the danger coming and chooses to ignore it. <laughs> you know, it feels nothing at all about it. Okay, I'm okay. I, I'm no psychologist, and I've never played one on TV. Uh, and I don't know if anybody under 40 would have recognized that reference, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do know how to use a dictionary. And, and, and that's, uh, you know, literally, that's where you get apathy from. You, you know, two Greek words, the prefix a, a, that means no, without, and pathos, that's emotion or feeling, without feeling. And, and people who are indifferent to these dangers, you know, they, they could care less about the consequences of what they do or what they don't do both you know for themselves and others that's what makes it such a horrible enemy that's what keep, makes it keep me up at night you know you can't see it coming you don't know it's there until it's right on top of you because to be honest with you i'd much rather have an enemy that i can fight i'd take that all day long over ignorance sure. and apathy well joe let me ask you this then i mean especially in in dealing in government i've uh, I don't want to speak holistically, but I, I know that it's been a, a common stereotype that there tends to be apathy within a lot mm -hmm. of government departments at all levels. I mean, I'm not just talking about uh, the North Carolina Health and Human Services. I'm talking about starting at the federal uh, level into the mm -hmm. state and, and local governments. Right, right. So it, uh, again, put your CTO head on. What recommendations do you have to some of the CTOs out there to be able to engage their teams. Cause to me, engagement is, is the antidote. Yes. Not, I don't want to say antidote, but it is the a start. First step. Yeah. It's the start to trying to drive success here because I know when I feel engaged by something, I want to wrap my arms around it. I want to do as much as I can to be successful. Um, Absolutely. But as driven as I am, I, I still think there's times where if I start to get a little bit complacent around something, whether it's work or, or personal, Mm -hmm. um, I start to pull back a little bit. So what, sure. what advice do you have to, to senior leaders out there in government to engage their teams, to, to right. not let apathy, um, ignorance too. But to me, I, I, this is just my opinion. I think apathy is even worse yes. um, to, to, to drive that engagement forward. Agreed. Uh, you know, the, uh, give them drugs, right? <laughs> no <laughs> sugar. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. No, the uh, you know that that's just it. Is you hit the nail on the head. Engage, engage folks. Speak to them. Talk to them. Remind them of why they're doing what they're doing. Okay. Um, don't don't ignore it, but deal with it. Do you mean um, focus on the mission? Is that what you're getting at? Exactly. Exactly. The, the mission, vision, and goals of your of your organization, you know, and, and you, you don't care about something because you don't see your contribution as being of any value. You don't see yourself as making a difference when and, and, and leadership needs to turn that around so that people do sense have a better sense of worth communicating to them so that they do you know, recognize, okay, what is the mission? What are you doing? And recognize you are a valued member of this team. You do make a difference. Your contribution does move us forward, does get us closer to meeting our, you know, mission, vision, and goals and so forth. I think that's uh, interesting, Joe. And I'll say uh -huh. why, because 
one of the one of the conversations I have on here all the time is talking about the next generation workforce, talking about the millennials, the Generation Z, um, whatever mm-hmm. gener- generation, whatever that comes after that, and they're all about mission. But at the same yeah. time, you have this you have this group that is coupled with driven by mission, but also digital native at the same time. So if I'm a CTO, I'm thinking this is this is the perfect opportunity to fold more talent into my ecosystem to to drive my mission forward to be more successful these are this is a group that doesn't want to be apathetic they want to join the quote-unquote fight to to drive this mission forward so for me this is a a huge opportunity to to keep talent within government or a huge opportunity to lose a whole lot of talent it's interesting to me that you're saying that the cto role could drive a lot of value forward in keeping this group in government to, 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 to allow citizens to have the, the, the expertise that this group can bring. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if, and if they sense their own role and that they have um, perception of the value of their role, and that's coming from the top mm-hmm. down. Okay. Only then can you get, uh, you know, it, it's got to be top down and bottom up, right? Uh, the top sure. down, that's um, leadership and encouragement, okay? From the bottom up, that's perception and reason, right? They, they have to see that. And the I think the bridge that's going to connect the two is when leadership will uh, not only recognize the value of their folks, um, but also have specific, meaningful, attainable goals for them to accomplish. They may see the whole picture and think this is too much for me to do now. Okay, well, break it down into its parts, right? How do you eat an elephant one piece at a time or one bite at a time or whatever whatever it is that they say, you know? Um, and, and, and see that even a small gain for today is better than not having done anything at all. And when when people see that, right, and and they get motivated and they and they start seeing the value and and their 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 pers- their perspective is not going to change until after their focus changes. You have to redirect the focus before you can capture the perspective. I I like that we kick this episode off talking about people because you to me, you can't have a technology conversation without talking about people. So I think that exactly. that was a perfect way to start. I want to pivot a little bit. Um, sure. Talk about you. You mentioned data earlier, um, mm-hmm. and I'm curious to get your insights here. I know I've seen data impact government dramatically. I mean, if you look over the last eighteen months, two years, just in that period of time, the way global governments have collaborated and interacted to kind of stem the pandemic um, and try to mitigate some of the challenges there, um, but. Uh, what do you see from a data perspective? How is it changing the landscape of government and kind of how they're going about accomplishing their mission? Sure. Excellent question, Brian. Um, you know, I'd, I'd have to boil it down. How am I going to what, what I what I like doing as a here's I'm putting my teacher uh, my uh, educator hat on all the hats, <laughs> all the hats. <laughs> that's right. All the hats come into play. Here, right? <laughs> there you go. That's right. That's right. Uh, because I, I like to boil things down to uh, to their constituent parts. And, um, you know, like with the ignorance and the apathy, I think here I can boil it down to privacy and transparency. 
Okay. Um, okay. Um, as people are becoming increasingly concerned over their own privacy and, and, and the privacy of their personal data, this is where we're bringing data in here. Okay. I, I think they're coming to expect um, not only companies, but also government in general to safeguard that privacy. And, you know, that that mantra, that mindset is going to take on a number of forms. You know, uh, myself, having worked for state government now for almost 30 years, uh, I've seen it all. OK, <laughs> you know, I've seen these expectations swing wildly and, and, and evolve over time. You know, it sometimes. OK, sometimes it almost seems like a contradiction of expectations. You know, I, I'm talking about this dichotomy between two extremes, you know, the one mentality of we don't want to be overregulated and uh, you need to take more drastic measures to protect us. You know, I mean, come on, make up your mind. You know, wh which one is it? You can't have it both ways <laughs> or, or you want it both ways. OK. Um, and, and again, in my experience over the years, I, I, I've seen several ex several swings um, between extreme caricatures of these two. I think these two are legitimate concerns, legitimate mindsets, but they get they get blown out of proportion, and, and I've seen it. Um, yeah, government does need to protect its citizenry, all right? But, you know, we, we shouldn't do so without having to be going to extremes ourselves, right? Either totalitarian, you know, the, the malevolent extreme, yeah. or the overregulated draconian, you know, the benevolent, supposedly, the benevolent extreme. You know, there, there's a happy medium. There's a fine line to be walked between privacy and security, right? Um protection and freedom, uh, efficiency and, and, and lackness. So uh, by taking greater precautions with data to ensure its safety and accuracy, right, then, then we can take measures to ensure the privacy of our people is protected. Uh, you know, that's privacy. It's interesting right. because I, one, of the, one of the drivers that people always talk about around mm -hmm. citizen services um, there's a number of things. One of them is, is consumer expectations, right? Oh, but yeah. At the same time, we have these consumer expectations, but we expect that we're not going to have a lot of data collected about us. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're expecting personalization at scale from governments, from consumer-driven uh, consumer entities, whatever it is. When I interact with an entity, I want them to know me already. I want them to know what my yes. challenges are and make it simple. But you can't do that without having data on that person. It's a, it's a very interesting dichotomy that, right. um, I mean, there's no right answer, in my opinion, honestly. And I think it all, all boils down to personal, personal choice, but it's allowing and having technology available to support citizens and, and constituents to make that personable choice. H how do you see this kind of dichotomy playing out? I'm really curious. Yeah, so it's what do you want? What do you want from me? Is is what we would ask in 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 the government, you know, or or at uh, companies or, or whatever, not just government. You know, you walk into a store, and uh, oh, I can't remember which movie it was. The guy walks into a store. Uh, it's set in the near future. He walks into a store and he sees holographic projections of, uh, hey, Bob, the last time you were in this store, you got a blue sweater. Uh, may I interest you in a 
pair of black shoes to go with that blue sweater you bought, you know, and that's amazing and convenient and wonderful. We get all these product suggestions and, you know, that you see that all the time now if, in Facebook ads and uh, Amazon. When you log in, they know everything and anything. Well, Do- DoorDash is great for that because I, and, yes. whenever, whenever we're ordering dinner, I, my wife will choose a restaurant and I just click it and I'm not exactly sure what I want, but you know, it tells me the last time I, I ordered there, this is what I got. And I'm a creature of habit, so it makes it easy. Right, right. And 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 then, you know, it, it's like you you click the thing that says, yes, it's okay for you to gather this data. So we go to the extreme of we don't want our privacy to be violated to the other extreme. Boy, it'd be nice to have all of our choices uh, listed for, you know, you, you can't have it both ways. Um, you know, in order to be able to um, serve in order to be for, uh, well, medical in the medical profession, right? They've got to gather all kinds of data and, oh my gosh, talk about HIPAA yeah. laws and stuff. You know, that, that is very, very strict and, and they have to know pretty much anything and everything and all about you so that they can prescribe the appropriate treatment and, and so forth. So yeah, I was, was going to ask you actually that, I mean, working with HHS and working in the healthcare space, how are you supporting kind of the citizens of North Carolina and, and the security of their data um, being in the field that you're in? Sure. Well, having these uh, having these very strict safeguards in place, these very um, you know robust measures that are that are taken to ensure uh, some of which I can't really talk about on camera. Um, but um, you know the the important thing is is segregating who has access to what. Uh, that the same person who puts it together isn't the same person that does the report. Uh, when there is the report where people want to be able to go to that website that tells them how many have been infected by the COVID-19 and so forth, um, you know, where the individual personal data is is left out so that you can't drill down to the point where you can figure out who it is, you know, um, and where if you have fewer than a certain number of observations in any uh, in any given strata of demographic that you eliminate those results so that people can't then tell, well, let's see, there were only four Native Americans here, and I happen to know two of them, and I know who that's talking about, right? So you can, you know, you can figure out who all the data is and and, and so forth. You know, those are uh, uh, some of the measures that are uh, that are taking place. Due diligence, um, security of not only the the machines where the data is stored, but the people who can access it, what can be done with it, how it can be reported on, how deeply can you drill into the detail, um, you know, what's the high level summary look like, um, and and so forth. How much do you and your team get involved in kind of the policy around this? Obviously, the technology can facilitate it, but I would imagine it'd be pretty valuable to have the people that are are doing the work, especially in conjunction with the technology, to play a part in building out policy to strengthen and, and harden the resolve of how the, the data is not only collected, but secured by government entities. It would be nice if there were a little bit more of a connection. Uh, unfortunately, in my, in, in my role and in, in the, um, uh, the, the department that I'm in, the agency, uh, there is not much of a connection. I mean, we'll, 
you know, we're made aware of what those policies and procedures are. And when uh, there is, say, a new data sharing agreement that has to be drawn up, uh, those policies are are consulted. Uh, but they're at this point, at least not in my involvement in the four and a half years I've been with them, um, that that bridge has not yet been crossed. But yes, we are aware of the policies and we'll conduct things, sure. um, you know, uh, with, with full being fully cognizant of, of what it is. But, you yeah, know, that's an excellent point you bring up. Yes, that that uh, I can see a great value in not only being aware of the policies, but as new technologies emerge and different ways of gathering, reporting and so forth uh, for the data come to bear um, to have uh, a bit of a voice in formulating the very same policy under which, you know, un- under which we operate, uh, I can see that as extremely valuable. I think unequivocally, data is going to provide so much value to government. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I think 10 out of 10 people would probably agree with that. I'm curious to get your predictions, though, on not whether or not it's going to provide value, but what type of value and how mm-hmm. do you see data really continuing to change government yeah. and, and how they... I mean, not just personalize things, but really become more efficient entities, more proactive entities. Sure. Uh, well, Brian, as I think as as more robust data gathering, storage, and reporting methods evolve, you know, as 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 the quality of these methods improve, and the costs thereof go down, right? And quality goes up, cost goes down. That's a good, you know, that's mm-hmm. a good pair to be looking at when we're talking about technology. That's the way it normally goes. You know, and, and as we're able to recruit and retain highly talented and skilled individuals who know how to use these increasingly sophisticated tools uh, to work with these ever-increasing mountains of data, I believe we will position ourselves for greater efficiency in serving the public. I mean, think about it. Five years ago, who would have dreamed that you could renew your car's license tag online with an interface that makes you think you're exchanging text messages with a friend, right? You know, you're having this conversation here with this AI and you know, it's an AI, but I mean, it's like, you know, it's like you're, it's a chat bot, but yet it guides you through the steps as though you are, sending text messages you know uh, who would have dreamed that you could pull up a map of your state on your phone tell at a glance the overall trends for i don't know wastewater monitoring um the covid stuff right we talked about that earlier you know cases vaccinations hospitalizations testings you know whole slew of other things that you can drill down to the uh the the county level and or zoom out to see just the state you know but as far as predictions in, in the next five or ten years I think with the ever, ever increasing use of things like smart sensors, okay, um, smart houses, smart appliances, smart cars, even, I don't know, even smart streets, you know, all that IoT that we're talking about, the Internet of Things, the sensors that that gather the data for us, you know, all of this contributing to an absolutely exponential rise in the gathering of data, Um, and at the same time, computing power also rising, along with reporting capability and the sophistication of that report that I talked about earlier. Um, I foresee things like being able to get nearly instantaneous traffic reports on your car's built-in GPS, you know, to uh, route you into a more efficient traffic flow. That that same kind of thing available for 
uh, school bus drivers, for city bus drivers, um, uh, the, the way health and human service benefits can be processed more efficiently, the distribution among uh, the people who need it the most. Uh, how about being able to create a shopping list with just a couple of taps on your phone, you know, after it reads the inventory off of your smart fridge? Yeah, the things that are novelty today, I think in the next five, 10 years are going to become commonplace, you know, um, a far more efficient and safer exercise and practice regimen for student athletes, things that are more tailored to them, their own uh, DNA profile, their own uh, genetic makeup and so forth. Um, better crowd control and ticket processing in stadiums for all kinds of public events and even private events, you know. Um, law enforcement being deployed to areas where crime is more likely to happen based on some type of more uh, more robust predictive analytics and stuff. Um, more efficient allocation and distribution of public utilities. Uh, how about secure and accurate voting <laughs> for, for yeah. public officials, right? Uh, along with really fast, maybe even instantaneous reporting of the results, being able to drill down into the uh, the demographics of why people voted the way they did, you know, would help um, all, on all these, you know, all of these things that I mentioned, these pipe dreams that you might think are pipe dreams that are probably closer to reality than we think. Okay. You know, it, why is it? It's because of being able to gather, handle, process, move, report, predict, summarize, uh, aggregate, distribute, and, and, and show the data. Right. And do so more and more efficiently. You know, it, it, it's been said that with more information comes more power. But, but I think we need to add to that sentence. Uh, better use of that information comes more power. And you know what uh, um, uh, Peter Parker's uncle told him, what with great power comes great responsibility. You know, I think I sounded more like Ronald Reagan than, than <laughs> Parker's uncle, but whatever. It is a true statement. I mean, you know, right. And, and it's not just greater use of that information because we have that power and we have the tools. It's only as good as the ability of the individual to wield that tool. And in government, right, to the extent that we in government can continue to lead the way in making progress in this area, you know, spearheading more of these initiatives, capitalizing on more of these opportunities. I think that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we can have the greatest impact and bring the greatest benefit to the people that we're trying to serve. So there's that's no doubt. There's no doubt as you were talking about some of the the sources of data, um, it it opens the aperture immensely. Uh, immensely, and as I was thinking yes. about it, as you were kind of giving descriptions on where all these data points could come from. The first thought I had was security and, mm -hmm. and privacy, which is, it's funny that we, we come back to that. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Do you think that's one of the reasons why it's so challenging for government to roll out technology faster or just as fast, let's say, as the private sector, because they have all of these policy and security and, yes. and privacy implications? Absolutely. And it's it, it's more than just that. I, th I think there's several things. I mean, uh, the, one of the biggest things is being hamstrung. You know, um, part of the issue in, 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 in the perception of fast, private, slow public, you know, right? Uh, uh, industry is fast. Government is slow. All that perception and, and perception is 90 percent of reality, they say. You know, I, I think it's important to understand that each 
each entity as they have their own strengths and weaknesses, right? You know, um, the private sector is best in providing specialized expertise. They're more flexible and sustainable in, in funding. Uh, their quicker response times or oversight of transparency and, and and that kind of thing. And the public sector, we're best at providing the facilities, the the infrastructure, the governance, the administration, you know, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. and, and sometimes those constraints uh, from uh, the regulatory standpoint and the budgeting standpoint, you know, you think oh, all they got to do is just print more money. Yeah, well, that money's got to be allocated. And if it isn't allocated to your department, you don't have it and you can't move forward. You're hamstrung. You're stuck. You know, this is what can often hamstring these government entities from moving on the technology as quickly as they might like. Now, um, I was a panelist in a technology education event not too long ago. Um, this, this very topic came up as a matter of fact, and, and the concept that they were tossing about for discussion was something that I can believe can mitigate this situation. And that is, um, trying to capitalize more on public private partnerships. Okay. For, for such agreements and arrangements to succeed and thrive, I think it's important to recognize those strengths and shortcomings of, of both sides, you know, like I talked about. Okay. You see, Brian, I believe each entity needs to see the other, you know, the way the way private industry looks at government, the way government looks at private industry. I think it's important for us to see each other as valuable partners. You know, that's going to remove the adversarial nature that a that a public private dynamic might often be perceived as having. You know, Uh, again, perception is 90 percent of reality. (laughs) And, And as they work together as partners rather than competitors or adversaries. You know, they're going to be better able to leverage the resources and their expertise through their coordinated efforts to maximize their impact on the ones they're really supposed to be serving and thus mitigating this issue with security and the and the regulations and the things that keep us from rolling these things out as quickly as we might otherwise like. I think it all comes full circle and it, we have so much mm-hmm. conversation around interoperability APIs and and all of, all of those pieces. And at the end of the day, we need to make sure that we're, we're integrating and and we're connecting things for the right reasons. Absolutely. Um, And and when they are connected, they are secure. So I think that that's a lot of the conversation that's to me driving the the future of what we're looking at. Yeah. The APIs, the APIs, the, uh, let's see, uh, APIs, KPIs, and ROIs, you know, (laughs) all that stuff's got to be in sync. I guarantee you said that before. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Dr. Joe, thanks for the time today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with our audience today? Sure. Um, Brian, again, I I do thank you so much for, it's been a delight and honor to, um, uh, to be here with you today. Um, I'd like to encourage your audience. uh, Remember we're here to serve the people. Okay. And, And not the other way around. Um, you know, I, I wanted to talk a little about transparency, uh, but just to some, you know, transparency builds trust. Okay. W- we need to ensure we keep the public's trust. I mean, especially if they've been disillusioned or disappointed in the past. Look, eight in 10 Americans say they don't trust the federal government and they have little confidence in its ability to solve our nation's problems. That's according to a recent survey by the Pew Research Center. You know what? We need to change that perception. I, I've said it. I said it two or three times, right? Perception is 90% of reality. 
and and doing so, especially when you've got so many variables in the mix working against you, those constraints that we talked about, that doesn't make it easy at all. Never said it would be easy. It's hard. That's why it's called work. You know, I mean, I, I've heard it said that public servants are sometimes compared to jet mechanics working on engines or the engines of the jet while the jet itself is still flying. <laughs> you know, it, it's almost impossible to do that. It may be, it may seem impossible, it may seem, but look, if we remember, we're serving the greater good. I sincerely hope that that's the thing that's going to remind us to keep on pressing on, you know, to, to overcome this apathy and ignorance that we talked about earlier, to, to continue to practice honesty, integrity, efficiency, uh, accountability, and all those things, all those soft skills that, that, that continue to earn the confidence and the trust of the people. You know, that's true in business, right? I mean, if I know my customers trust me and they're confident in what I'm doing or what I'm selling or the service I'm providing, you know what? You better believe I'm going to do everything I can to try to keep it that way. Hey, why shouldn't government be the same way, right? In 1946, philanthropist Joseph Pugh said, tell the truth and trust the people. I've often told my kids as they were growing up that trust is a funny thing. It's difficult to learn, easy to lose, but nearly impossible to regain after you've lost it. You know. So again, I encourage the audience, Brian. I, I you know, if I could look into their eyes right now, I'd say, take heart, okay? Don't be discouraged. Keep up the good work. Do the right thing. Remember the basic common sense decency that you learned in kindergarten. And don't be afraid to use the tools of technology and data to help you along the way. They are just tools. They're only as good as the hand of the person that wields it. Okay, you, you, you might not ever become a millionaire, but you know what? If you can hold your head up high and say that you've done right by your fellow man, you'll probably sleep better at night. And that's worth it all in my book. I love it. We started with people. We're ending with people. I think that's you the, go. the best way to end. Dr. Joe, thanks again for the time today. Really appreciate it. And I think the insights that you gave my listeners were, were, were definitely worth listening to. So again, thanks for the time. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Brian. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or wherever you access your podcasts. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.